If I put out one financial plan and I gave it to somebody in every single one of these areas, I'm quite certain that the result would come back different from each one of these areas. If I gave a financial plan to one of these paths or one of these tribes, but a multitude of firms, the results would come back different. I'm Ian Harvey from New York City, and you're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. For today's episode, I'm joined by certified financial planners and professors Luke Dean, Dr. Nathan Harness, and Dr. Craig Lemoyne from Utah Valley University, Texas A&M, and the University of Illinois, respectively. They are in the classrooms training up the next generation of financial planners and are serving as CFE program directors. These three have a wealth of insights to share about the past, present, and future of financial planning. Up next, we'll talk about the 12 tribes of financial planning that they created, what it is, and how it's used to help people find their calling in the profession. Before we get to the episode, I want to tell you about the 2020 FPA NextGen Gathering. No doubt, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you have heard people share their gathering stories and how it transformed their career. This can be part of your story too, and the time to register is now. You can register online at fpagathering.org. Early bird rates end March 20th, so be sure to register today. I hope to see you there. We have Luke Dean. Uh, Luke Dean is the program director at Utah Valley. We have Nathan Harness, who is also a professor and program director at Texas A&M. And then Craig Lemoyne, uh, he is also a program director at the University of Illinois. So I wanted to start with the background of how did this come about? What, what caused you guys to create these 12 tribes of financial planning? This is Luke Dean. I'll, I'll start. So many students come to us as professors and say, hey, I'm looking at an internship or a job offer at this company versus this company. What do you think? And so we're put in a position where we have to kind of articulate the difference between specific firms or specific types of firms on a pretty regular basis. And, and we put our heads together and thought we, we should come up with a way that we can get this out to students, career changers, and academic programs just as a useful resource. And I kind of looked back at the 12 tribes of Israel as kind of the the inspiration. To someone outside looking in, they would think that those 12 tribes are all the same. But to someone in the tribe of Benjamin versus the tribe of Daniel, they, they knew the differences between each tribe. And I think for someone looking on the outside in of financial services, they think that working at Vanguard is the same at working at a small RIA firm and, and is the same at working at Lincoln Financial or, or Northwestern Mutual. Uh, but people that have been in those firms know that there are cultural differences. Uh, so that was kind of the inspiration. So you talked about the benefit for students and trying to understand, you know, the career path that they can have. Do you see an application for practitioners in this as well? Uh, this just happened to me yesterday. I was talking to a practitioner on the phone and we were walking through the firm that they were currently at and the opportunity that existed for some students. And what was fascinating for me is um, I even think about the start of my career. So I started out at a wirehouse firm uh, almost 20 years ago when I started my career into financial services. That entry point for me um, was my lane. And that was the only lane that I knew much about. 
And, you know, even if we look at the evolution of our profession across 20 years, there's a multitude of new lanes that if, if you had only been uh, driving in your lane, you may not be aware of uh, across the multitude of different opportunities that are available. So I think this, this not only makes a difference for students in making a choice, it helps those who are explaining our profession both to clients and uh, ultimately to those coming into our profession, what the different opportunities are. And those within our profession, it helps to come up with, I believe, better differentiation. Uh, when we look at how do I differentiate my service model from somebody else, I think it's really important to understand everyone else and help to, to see how you fit well into the profession or able to provide holistic or the type of advice that you're trying to provide um, to your clients uh, to be able to differentiate from one firm to the next. So with that, um, we have the 12 tribes listed on the screen right here. And so what we want to do for the audience, we have a poll question of how many tribes have you been a part of? Because often people start in one and then maybe transition to others. Um, so looking at these 12 tribes, you have different attributes associated with the different areas. Can you guys share more of how you, how you kind of assign these attributes and the differences that you see in those? So the, the way that we look at this uh, financial planning, the way that I look at this for financial planning world, these tribes of financial planning, is that I, I kind of view this as a piece that not only do we share with students, uh, but I also share with parents and with, with advisors um, on the college. I share within our campus, within our department. And I, I find it to be a really great one-page piece, and, and I'm going to talk about the attributes here in just a second, but... Um, you know, what I find this to be is when you sit down and talk with somebody about financial planning, uh, they generally think of the bigger name firms that advertise on television, football games, and golf events. And that's not necessarily the jobs our students are taking. And it's not necessarily at all the entire world of planning that is available. So when we talk a little bit about the model of these 12 tribes or circle of financial planning or whatever each of us call it, you know, I think it's important to realize that, that students can succeed coming from wildly different backgrounds with wildly different passions. And that's the conversation I like to have with students, I like to have with their parents, I like to help with our advisors, because we have different kinds of people in our program. We have some who are extraordinarily analytical. We have some who are very visual learners. We have quite a few that, that are very entrepreneurial. And it's important that we did this in a way that lended itself to kind of say, well, you know, there's somewhere on this that you can identify what you're good at. And Nathan, I think I'd, I'd like to kick over to you for just a second. You know, you, you talk a little bit about, hey, if you, if you, you know, what we think your fit is, um, don't leave the industry, just find another tribe. Yeah, that's happened with a multitude of students. Again, in my 12 years of, of teaching at the academy, I've had probably in some total seven freshmen come in to be a financial planner. Still to this day, our industry is relatively unknown. And uh, I just got out of a conference where we talked about the legacy of financial planning. I believe our legacy 
is going to be in helping people understand their to engage their purpose and passion into the industry, but they have to know where they fit and they have to have an understanding of the comprehensive nature and opportunities that exist within our profession. So when I have students who come out, let's say, and they go to work in any one of these areas, even within these areas, they're sub areas. So let's just pick out RIA. There are a multitude of different types of RIA firms. So you could go into an ensemble firm, you could go into a multitude of different areas. And if that wasn't the right fit for you, or that company or that particular path or tribe was not the right fit for you, it doesn't mean that you're not the right fit for financial planning. When I first came into the industry, just referencing back really rapidly, uh, my entry point, there were 200 people that started uh, at the firm with me simultaneously. Three still exist in the industry today. And so there's a multitude of reasons for that. But I think part of the reasoning behind that is because of a lack of understanding of where I could fit in, given the the gifts that I have and the passion that I have in my area of planning. So what I'm hoping is we're helping uh, people understand the map of planning. I always tell my students this, that um, if, if you have extreme passion, but you don't know how to engage your purpose, that's like having a map without a destination. So we're hoping that people can see the entire map and have a clear understanding how they can get to where they want to go. Uh, with that said, just one piece to mute here and an understanding is this isn't perfect. It becomes exceptionally difficult to put up walls and even uh, guide rails to define uh, each one of these companies. So if we took um, any one company, they, they could potentially fit into a couple of these modular areas, not just one. It's like going to Walmart and saying, what does Walmart sell? Well, everything. It becomes exceptionally difficult to define that. So we've done our best to create some of those key differences between each one of these modular areas so that we can bring definition and understanding. But this is an evolving piece, and we would love to receive feedback from this audience or any audience in continuing to enhance this. So with that, I want to look at uh, the poll question here that, that everybody's been um been answering. And so it looks like um, how many tribes have you been a part of your career? 44% of participants said that they've been in one. Well, now it's changing. 24% have been in two. 22% have been in three. And then um, a smaller portion in the four or five plus. That alone is interesting. I hope it's indicative that they're happy with the tribe they're in because that's that's part of this is if you're not happy, don't leave the profession, don't leave the industry, find a better fit. And it seems like, just based on your poll results, that people are kind of staying within that tribe. So let's go to each specific quadrant, if we would. And so this first quadrant here is the wirehouses, the PNC, life and disability, and then these franchise models. There's three different quadrants. So um, Nathan, do you want to take take this one and kind of walk through the different the different areas and attributes that are, that you associate with this this quadrant? Sure. Yeah. When we look at the attributes of, of this bluish or navy looking quadrant, you'll notice in the graphic that we uh, co-designed here, the graphic, it doesn't have a perfect ending either. The color patterns blend from one to the next, meaning that some of these have crossover, that as you move into a, a franchise or a, an independent, also known as a hybrid, that 
has some key differences than some of the other attributes that are known within this quadrant. So this particular quadrant that we have here tends to be what you would consider high risk, high reward, meaning that you have potentially uh, little to no salary coming in and you've got to generate your own income most of the time inside of this particular quadrant. It's going to be based around a, a, a big name typically. So most of the name recognition and most of the students that come to me into our financial planning program if I just said, what is financial planning? The names they would throw out almost exclusively set inside of this quadrant because they're national. They have national brand. Uh, they're putting out national advertising. In most of these instances as well, you would think in terms of book of business, meaning that you go and you generate a book of business that is a clientele that uh, you you generate through the sales cycle. Uh, when you compare each one of these three quadrants, uh, if I was to make a heat map for sales, this particular area is going to have the higher amount of sales expectations or business expect development expectations for students. What's interesting about uh, eight, uh, well, I'll call them 20 to 25-year-olds that come out of our program, many of them are scared of that word sales. As a matter of fact, we've had to reframe that word. Uh, the courses that we put together, we call emotional intelligence instead of sales, where the reality is they're still involved in business development. It's just helping them understand the perception around what that means. There tends to be pretty good mentorship, or maybe another way of saying that is training inside this quadrant. So there's very formalized training programs and a lot of the interns that we send into these areas go in groups of 50, 60, 70 nationwide into large training programs. To break down and just spend a few minutes uh, or less on each one of these areas, Wirehouse tends to be one of the older areas. So when you hear the term Wirehouse, this tends to be the Merrills, the Morgans, the UBSs of the world. Um, these are full service brokers or in some instances, mega firms that are national and in some cases global tend to focus more heavily, at least historically, on wealth management and um, having both the broker-dealer side have uh, heavy research analysis um, involved in trading, investment banking in some instances, and in some instances can provide a wider platform because of that access to credit that maybe some smaller firms traditionally aren't engaged in. Financial advisors in most of these areas tend to be employees of the firm. So they are considered what's called a registered rep. This was defined uh, by the Securities Act of 34. They fall under, at this moment, the suitability standard. I don't want to get into the, the long conversation about the difference between suitability and fiduciary, but generally speaking, that is the standard uh, defined by the Securities Act of 34. They must pass in most instances. So I tell students, if you're going to work here, you're probably going to past the series license being the 63 or the 65 or the combo, which is the 66, and you're going to pass the series seven. In most cases, that's the first set of licenses that are required for you to go to work for the firm. And then you'll go on, uh, hopefully, and take the CFP exam. Clients here tend to be viewed um, by the firm as clients of the firm. That's why you can see lawsuits sometimes that occur whenever somebody leaves one of these firms and goes to another. But large brand recognition 
recognition and somebody else is covering your compliance versus some of these other areas you're in charge of your own uh, compliance and advertising and other pieces. Because of that, again, with each one of these and almost every instance of the PNC, the L&D, the wirehouse brokerage, there tends to be um, your take home. Let's say that a dollar is generated in revenue. You get to keep uh, on average about 40% of that. The remainder goes to your parent company to pay for overhead, to pay for lights, to pay for compliance, and all the different elements that help you run your practice. Wirehouse, PNC, and L&D have a lot of similarities in, in the elements that I just spoke over, except for that property and ca- uh, casualty, or PNC is what a lot of people in the industry refer to it as um, in, in that area, the focus tends to be more on insurance or protection. Sometimes you'll see PNC and L&D, life and disability firms, combined into one, but in, for the purposes of, of this conversation, we've split them into two. These are big names that all states of the world that tend to be engaged in car insurance, um, in some instances, homeowners insurance. As we move into life and disability in that area, uh, again, a lot of financial planning takes place in this area specifically for the middle market. Um, these would be the Northwestern mutuals of the world that tend to have a protection first mindset, but still have the opportunity and ability to do incredible holistic financial planning inside of um, those particular areas. Most of those two quadrant or those two um, tribes that I just talked about uh, require that you pass the PNC and L&D. Those are licensed at the state level. So you'd have to pass um, those exams based on the state that you live in rather than national exams. The last piece that I'll talk about is what I consider personally to be one of the hardest uh, tribe to describe and explain because it contains so much. And that's this franchise. When you hear this uh, franchise or independent broker dealer, what's contained in here is two additional pieces. And those two additional pieces are known as duly registered or hybrid firms. I hear people in the industry all the time refer to those t- to mean the same thing, but they don't. A duly registered firm is different from a hybrid firm. Both of them have an RIA and a broker dealer, but when it comes to a duly registered, you're rolling up under the um, RIA of a captured parent. So that might be uh, Raymond James Financial Services. Raymond James is going to be um, my uh, my broker and the RIA that I fall underneath versus a hybrid firm is going to have an independent RIA um, and they broker through some kind of an independent broker dealer as well. Uh, again, in this little area, I'll, I'll, I'll conclude by talking about this franchise independent, very similar to full service brokers, but they tend to be smaller. Um, you are not an employee typically of the parent firm of the wirehouse. Many of them are duly registered that I already got into just a second ago. Um, businesses inside this quadrant typically do business in their own name. So they may be uh, Nathan Harness Financial Services, and then in small print somewhere, they'll talk about the broker dealer that they fall underneath. Uh, so there is a sort of this duality in that you get independence in the naming of your firm while simultaneously having a big big brand coming behind you is, would be one of the advantages of this. Clients tend to be viewed as clients of the advisor, not the firm. And I think that's in part because of that RIA or dual registration element that's there. You can have a very open architecture. I think one of the interesting pieces of this independent element is you still can, um, let's say that you have clients 
clients, you purchase a book of business, you can continue to receive the trails off of a book of business that you purchase while simultaneously being able to charge an AUM model underneath the RAA side. So it provides a, a lot of flexibility in how you do business from an architecture standpoint. But there tends to be a little bit less brand recognition because your name's on the sign rather than somebody else's name. Again, series license traditionally would be passed here plus you would have the RIA side as well. I think that's the, the bulk of what I wanted to say here, so I'll pass it on to uh, back, back to you to move to the next area, Hannah. Absolutely. Thanks, Nathan. So on this next area, uh, Luke, would you want to tackle this next grouping of, of tribes? Yeah, and I thought Nathan did a really good job with a really hard section um, just because there is so many nuanced differences between each of those places. RIA is very similar in that you could be at a small firm that is state registered or just barely nationally registered with 100 million assets, or you could be at a firm that has 4 billion in assets under management. Um, so we're just lumping them in one tribe and trying to generalize and characterize that, so it's hard to do. Um, but effectively there, it tends to look a lot like a law firm or an accounting firm where you start um, in an entry-level role, work your way up, and take on more responsibilities until you become a partner at the firm. And so um, generally, there's not as much business development professor right out of the gate for a new professional or a student or a career changer. But over time, as they become partner, there there tends to be a little more pressure on how are you helping grow the firm. Um, the focus at, at a lot of RIA firms is take care of the clients, and that will help build the business. So if you if you're more of a minder than a finder, then this tends to be a good tribe for you. Um, and then I know I'm there's a lot more to say there, but um, but I'm going to jump over to the accounting and tax RIA firms. So they're still RIA firms, but I kind of treat them as a separate tribe because over half of accounting firms have started offering financial planning or wealth management services, and that number is growing every year. Um, and accountants have the best reputation in financial services for, for client trust. And so they already have a lot of clients that they've been helping on the tax side that, that would also like help on comprehensive financial planning or wealth management. And, and so those firms like to hire CFPs. They would love it if you had an EA or a CPA to go with that, um, but they hire a lot of CFPs. And the focus, again, is take care of the client. And, and there's not as much pressure on building the book of business because most of your clients are referred over from the parent tax company. So an example of companies like that are Moss Adams. Um, and then, you know, locally in each city, there tends to be, a, you know, big accounting firms that, that offer financial planning as just a small subset. Um, and so, again, really good if you're a minder um, and the clients are just kind of delivered to you. On the counseling side, um, th there's a lot of directions you can go with this, from consumer credit to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or board, whatever they're called, in D.C. Um, one popular one is Ziders, where they've won military contracts to go out to military bases and provide counseling to U.S. military families. And so they have job offers around the world on U.S. military bases in Germany, Japan, Guam, um, Italy, and even Hawaii and Kansas and everywhere else. So um, they can hire 
for full-time positions. They can also hire for part-time or weekend or even just a few hours a, you know, a week um, that local financial planners and advisors could sign up for um, and go help, get, get paid to go help these military families and, and almost in a way feel like they're serving. Um, and then the, there's a lot of different channels you can go in with counseling. tends to be with more um, lower net worth clients um, and the issues are, are real, um, but deal with a lot less zeros than what you would typically see in some of the other tribes. Um, moving down to the government, academia, and research, um, I saw that Fran Lawrence was listening on this call. There, there are wonderful professor positions around the country, and most financial planning programs are growing and need, need more PhDs. So we would love for anyone to go finish their PhD and join the ranks of academia. A lot of practitioners join academia as an adjunct later in their career. Um, so, I mean, we kind of joke that in the government academia research and maybe even the quadling, the counseling portion of this quadrant, you have to take the vow of poverty to enter them. But there are, <laughs> there are a lot of wonderful people in this profession that just want to help everybody of all net worth. And these are tribes where you can find um, outlets for that. We've also seen CFP grads go work with government groups just to help um, with financial planning, financial service issues, and try to make an impact in government policy where they feel like, you know, my efforts, instead of helping 100 clients, now I can impact millions of Americans. Um, so I tried to do it quick. Hopefully in doing it quick, I, I didn't mischaracterize or generalize too much. But, but you can see that in each tribe, there are hundreds of opportunities. And that's one of the main points of this is to show people outside of the profession considering joining. Supply and demand is beautiful in this profession. And there are so many jobs for so many different personalities that um, we we hope you come join the profession and that you can use this as a tool if you're a professional to recruit smart people in your communities to the profession. So for this last area, Craig, I'll let you you take this. Sure. I'll talk to. more about this area. So, you know, when I look at the navy blue area and, and you know, I, I look at that lighter blue, what, what I think is sort of the past and the future, I mean, the past and the current, right? When when I was getting into this profession in the 1990s, you know, the, the only option was really those bigger navy blue names, yeah? And they, they all sort of had some business development issues, and most of them had a commission element, if not right away, at least in a few years. And so that was, in, in my opinion, what financial planning was. The roots of it tended to be in a space where, as a young person, you had to somewhat make a name for yourself, hustle, and, and, and build a book. In fact, my first job out of college was with an, an insurance company uh, in, in the dark blue there. Now, the lighter blue tends to be where a lot of our students go today from Illinois, and, and the reason for that, I think, is the career path conversations they can have with employers. You know, you, you, have, you have a giant, giant sucking sound towards our students today and the fact that, that there's huge job opportunities. We have great placement rates right now in this major. All of our programs do. And so they really want a career path. And, and the REAs and tax REAs are really good at having kind of an assistant associate full partner level uh, of things. So, you know, last we have this sort of gold area. Okay. And, and to me, this is the future. This is where we go from here. 
you know, you look at wealth management, you look at fee compression in the investment space, and, and it becomes very apparent to all of us on this call that eventually financial planners are going to have to stop charging AUM and come up with other ways to get paid. Because you, you have these robotech and fintech firms and robo-advisor firms where you, you're just cutting into the cost of asset management, and we're actually starting to leverage these tools. And so I think the robo and fintech firms, while they're not really hiring out of our programs now, are going to, and they're going to in droves. You know, as you have more big name robo-advisors that start offering a la carte financial planning services for hiring clients, it, it does not strike me as, you know, any kind of mystery that eventually they'll be coming to this program in buckets. So I, I see the future, the gold there with robo-advisors and fintech as really being a, a place where our students land. Banking, credit union, trust companies have gotten more aggressive in recruiting um, offering anything from, you know, kind of the, the dark blue to the light blue spaces. But I want to spend a little more time on discount brokerage and, and product distribution companies. One of the biggest employers of, of all of our students tend to be the large RIA custodian firms, right? Schwab, TD, Fidelity, uh, those tend to be hiring CFP, young CFP professionals or people that could become young CFP professionals by the hundreds, not by the teens here. And Vanguard as well, and some other the big mutual fund companies, you know, they look to our programs and, and they are very competitive and they're hiring. They offer incredible packages for students, salaries, benefits, pay off the student loans, work-life balance, 37 to 40 hour work weeks. And it becomes very compelling for students to head in that direction, salaries and also career paths. <clears throat> and we've recently at Illinois been, become very friendly with a, with a large annuity mutual fund company and the product distribution. And then they want all their internals to have the CFP mark. They like that CFP on internals. And so they look at our program and say, well, you can come out and take that and pass it. You're close to where, you know, Champaign-Urbana is. So we've had some amazing luck here. And the thing that I think is interesting about this, these 12 tribes is when you look at this gold area, this is where a lot of your job opportunities are starting to come from. But they're also pushing the way the other ones look. Because firms like Fidelity, Schwab, and TD offer such amazing benefits, salaries, and packages, you're even starting to see some of the dark blue spaces get on the ball with it. So, oh, well, we, we, we can't just offer someone a commission like we could 30 years ago. So, you know, you're really starting to see evolution. I think a lot of it's fueled from this gold sector. And more and more of our students seek out these jobs, you know, every year. With this, one of the questions that we, I know when we were talking about, we wanted to ask the audience again, there's a lot of biases that come into into this. And so we were curious, when thinking of hiring an employee, would you be less likely to hire someone from a specific tribe or company? Um, and so we'll we'll put this out to the group and see see what the results are on that. But as we continue, there was a question from Catherine that says, with limited sales experience, is there a tribe that someone in the process of getting their CFP certification should lean towards? I'll try starting, and then Nathan and Craig can help me out. So the the beauty of being at a tax firm or a bank or credit union or a PNC place is that they're already feeding you clients from the from the tax side of the business, from the bank and the credit union. They have customers that have two million dollars in a CD, making half of a percent. And so they'll refer those people over to you and say, you ought to go talk to Catherine. She'll help you do something more with that $2 million than leave it in a CD that's not even FDIC covered. Um, 
or at the PNC companies where they have compulsory clients that are required to come in because the state requires car insurance and their lender requires um, insurance on their home. So if you if sales experience is a hard thing for you and you might not be great at building your own book of business, you want to look at, at tribes like that or even the discount brokers where they just have so many clients at Fidelity and Vanguard and Schwab and TD um, and E-Trade that they just need people to help take care of the existing clients. Um, there's there's your start. Craig and Nathan, you have anything to add to that? This is Craig. I, I do, and then I'll, I'll get out of your way, Nathan. But, you know, one of the things we found that's pretty successful is that model of independent broker-dealer model or even independent insurance agent model where you've got multiple folks um, in an office. Let's say you've got an Ameriprise office of four agents in Chicago, right? We see this a lot in our program. And, you know, they are, you know, producing agents and they, they're a BD channel. But what they want is somebody to come on and help take some of their, uh, you know, smaller clients, some of their newer clients, someone they can, they can kind of mold and train and teach and mentor. And so getting on board with a group like that could also be very successful. The only other thing I would add is any one of these um, particular tribes would potentially hire somebody with limited sales experience. Every student I send into the industry that comes out of an undergraduate program has limited sales experience. We all ultimately end up in some form of sales, whether you think you do or not. I always explain it to students this way. If you've ever had a boyfriend or girlfriend in your life, you've been involved in sales. If you're like me, you're pretty good at sales because my wife's way better looking than I am. The reality is you're going to go to work for these companies and as you have passion, that passion becomes infectious. And that makes you a gatherer. You gather people to you. I think maybe what the underlying question is, is there a place in here where I can be mentored so that I can grow into my best me? And I think the answer is every one of these areas. I think the key for you is going to be asking the right questions to the firms that you're interviewing with to figure out what the opportunity is that exists for you to go to work there. So in any one of these areas that I've sent students into, there is an opportunity. Let's say, let me just pick on sort of my quadrant. For example, if I'm inside the wirehouse brokerage. If you look at wirehouse brokerage, traditionally, a lot of the runways that you have there is between 18 and 36 months where you're going to be on a draw or a salary uh, for 18 to 36 months as you begin to um, develop your book of business. However, I also send students into wirehouse teams where they go to work on a team with no business development expectations and frankly, in some instances, no business development expectations for their entire career as long as they stay in the role that they're in. So it, it really varies from one channel or tribe to the next on the team or group that you're going to work for. Even in the area, in the quadrant that tends to have, or the area that tends to have very high sales expectations, let's look at um, life and disability. I have a student who went to work here locally for a, a firm that tends to have very high um, business development expectations on the role that they have. But this student, their role inside that entire office is to run financial plans for that office. So it's an insurance company 
traditionally or protection first mindset, but we have a student in there who has zero business development expectations because their job is to, in essence, be something similar to a paraplanner for all the individuals inside that office. So their salary is paid for by the members of that office. So it really varies significantly from one firm to the next. I think the key is to ask the right questions to determine what your role would be inside each one of these areas and then to match up who you are with the quadrant that you think is going to be long-term the best fit, not just short-term, not just where's the best fit for me today, but across my career, what would I like to do? We've talked about the students and the practitioners, and I'm curious, how have companies responded to this as you guys have put this out and and continue to talk to more people? Does this resonate with the the companies out there? Sure. This is Craig. I'll just give two little stories, but you know, we, we've, we've done this presentation a few times now, and one of the first time we did it was at CFP Board's meeting um, in D.C., and we, we got the opportunity to present this to the room, and I don't know, probably a few hundred people were there, and one being a, a very well-known RIA uh, nationally who's won some awards and stuff. And uh, without outing him, we, you know, we gave this presentation and we talked about these different groups that did planning, you know, we go the hallway and, and he's just red in the face, right? This guy's just lit and he comes up to me and he goes, you guys know better, you know, we're the only ones doing planning and the rest of it's blah, blah, blah. But he was very, 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 very agitated. And I just remember thinking, man, we've struck a chord here. You know, when, when you talk about how, how do other companies react to this, how do companies react to this, I think they look at themselves, and naturally so, right, is that, well, you know, I do financial planning. This guy doesn't. Uh, I, I do financial planning. PNC doesn't. Well, you know, just because PNC doesn't necessarily lend itself to CFP doesn't mean that PNC agents aren't doing some element of planning, right? I mean, I, I, I spent, you know, what, a decade, you know, in, in other designation worlds where we hit PNC agents and they do a process that is financial planning. They just don't hold the CFP. So, you know, you get into this world of what is planning. We do planning. You don't do planning. You don't do it right. You charge differently, you know, and, and I think to answer your question, we all think we're doing it. And if financial planning is defined as a process of identifying goals and then meeting and treating those goals, you know, I, I would say that's the reason everyone's in the circle. But you have some very passionate, strong opinions in industry about who's doing it and who's not. And uh, I was surprised at how passionate those turned out to be. Yeah, kind of the characterization um, from firms that heard about themselves. They said, you kind of labeled us right, but you weren't mean enough to our competitors. Yeah, the only other thing I would add, too, is it has to do, and and I referred to this, I think, when we gave the presentation at FPA National, if you look at how our profession has evolved, um, I think the first time I've heard this before is my friend, uh, Dr. Vicki Hampton. She said, we're the tree that grew backwards. When you think about our profession, most professions form from generalization to specialization, medical field, general practitioner into all the sub-disciplines as we've evolved and grown. Financial planning is the tree that grew backwards. We all were specialized, and you almost see it to some extent on this chart right here. We all have our specialized areas that tend to be our anchor that we say is how what, what we identify with, but we see the value in generalized or holistic financial planning. 
The problem becomes that everybody tugs towards their specific area in saying this is the best portion of generalization rather than we all have the generalized nature to do holistic financial planning inside the model that we set in today. So I think as we evolve and we grow into what financial planning is becoming as a profession, we've got some real complexities as each one of these firms have a strong opinion um, individually in speaking into the amalgamation of each one of these areas to say, what is generalized financial planning? If I put out a financial plan to any, if I put out one financial plan and I gave it to somebody in every single one of these areas, I'm quite certain that the result would come back different from each one of these areas. If I gave a financial plan to one of these paths or one of these tribes, but a multitude of firms, the results would come back different. And that's okay. In part, we are an art and a science combined, but this also lends itself to a unity problem. We're not looking for uniformity. However, we need to find greater unity, that is, in how we view or how we broadcast to the end client ultimately what the profession of financial planning is. I think Nathan makes a really important point there that you see companies running ads basically attacking other financial advisors or how they approach the business. And um, we got to realize that there's a whole ecosystem where financial planners are already on the lower end of trust in financial services. And it doesn't help if we just vilify the other tribes um, publicly or privately, because it, it it erodes that trust in financial advisors in general, and it behooves the whole profession to either adopt a fiduciary standard or a, or a higher standard of professionalism. Because if consumers trust advisors, there will be more clients for everybody across across any type of approach to financial planning. Well, this conversation brings up an interesting. An interesting question of, you know, talking about financial planning, how can you talk more about how financial planning looks different in these different in these different areas or tribes or paths or what we're calling them? Sure. I, I, I'd like to kind of take a shot at it. You know, again, I, I think we define financial planning as a process based approach to defining and meeting and treating uh, financial goals of a client and, you know, implementing, following up, monitoring those things. So I think at their core, um, those that engage in financial planning and not just product sales uh, tend to follow a process, the CFP process or a similar process. But you do have, you know, um, you know, auto and homeowners in the PNC line where you know, we're just selling products. You've got the product distribution model where really they want someone with a CFP background, but it's not really what you're doing every day. You know, you're going to be supporting uh, agents that call in, but you're not necessarily a frontline planner. So it is very institutional. It is very, very different. If you go to work for somewhere that's a call center, right? Let's say that you have people call in all day with financial questions. It typically is rather scripted, rather monitored. What you say does come off of, you know, certain paths that you're, you know, kind of give you some suggestions of language. And so that's a different type of financial planning than if you just sit with me in a conference room uh, with, and, and we sit down and, and I get out a yellow pad and ask what's keeping you up at night. You know, that those are both financial planning uh, that you may work as, as an employee at Fidelity Schwab and, and you sort of have a, a script for Collins or if you're dealing with somebody one-on-one -on -one at a table. 
They are, however, wildly different in how you deliver it and what you're even allowed to say to people. So I, I, I do think there's pretty big differences, um, but we kind of go back to a common process, which to me is what got everybody in the circle to begin with. So at, at trust companies, they'll have a heavier emphasis on estate planning. At tax firms, they, they should have an advantage on doing quality tax planning for their clients. Um, the robos will probably have an advantage on reaching the mass market, the lower net worth, um, and then um, at life and disability insurance companies, they'll even if they reward financial planning, there still will be a strong culture of a lot of your compensation is based off of which products you are selling. But differences within each, like at RA firms, you can find RA firms that are heavy investment focused heavy retirement focus, et cetera. What were you going to say, Nathan? Well, I was just going to say to me in some ways, I hope, and this may be a bit of rose colored glasses because I love this profession so much. It's like asking what's the difference between the nationals and the Astros. And you're going to have, if we, if we put a poll out on that, I can guarantee you're going to get a lot of feedback on that. You're going to get a lot of opinions on the difference uh, of these two amazing teams that found themselves in the World Series. There clearly are differences, but they're both playing baseball. They're both incredible at baseball. They both have the same game that they're playing. Um, I don't know that we are that far along in financial planning, but that's the vision. That's where we're heading, I hope. One of the things that Luke said earlier um, when he was talking about his quadrant of that government, academic, and research, and the reason that I'm passionate in that er in that particular area and say that we need continued need is we still struggle with normative practice. If you go to a, a doctor um, in one city and you go to a doctor in another city, your, your in diagnosis is going to have a little bit of differences in the particular pills that they may prescribe or the routines that they may prescribe. But the prescription, pro the, the process of identifying the problem is relatively similar one to the next. The vision, and I hope where we continue to head as a profession, is our diagnosis is this is very similar, that we have a foundational similarity between each one of these uh, tribes, and that the end function is that they all want to be in the World Series. They're all playing the same game. They just play it a little bit differently and that's how they got to the to the big game, the big dance ultimately in the end anyways. Hannah, can we return to your poll question? Because for us as professors mentoring students, and I see Setu Mazumdar on there, he, he mentors students, and Fran Lawrence at the University of Missouri. It's important for us to know because students come to us and say, hey, if I go, if I go intern or take a first job at one of these companies, is it going to taint me? Uh, or will it make me more attractive down the road? And that's a that's something we as professors need to know from the audience. And so looking at this poll question, again, so when thinking of hiring an employee, would you be less likely to hire someone from a specific tribe or company? 21% uh, said yes, 26% said no, and 50% said it depends. And so I, you know, looking at that, that tells me almost 75% are saying perhaps there may be a company or tribe that that might make us at our tribe, less likely to hire them. So that, that's important for us to know as professors because we're counseling students that are starting in, in one company or one tribe and perhaps, you know, later in their career will be at three or four different places. And Michael Kitsis has, has publicly said, 
it's your third job that matters in financial planning. The first two are just preparing you to succeed in that third job. As an employer, that's frightening. <laughs> um, so I'd be curious if the audience has any thoughts on that, especially people who replied with it depends, um, had any other thoughts or any color they would add to their answer. So another question from Ross that just came in said, do you think it's more valuable to seek out mentors from within your tribe or outside of your tribe? I would think a little bit of both. If there's a day where, where I move from academia and, and open a wealth management firm, you know, and every time I see y'all's cars at conferences, I get that much closer to it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that that's something where, of course, you want people in that space. But some of my biggest mentors, one, one of the, the gentlemen that helped launch my career and one of the best financial planners I know process-wise is Square in the life insurance space. And, and I love connecting with him from time to time and catching up. I've got another very strong mentor in academia, another very strong mentor who is an independent broker. And, and, you know, these are very strong people in my life that have helped shape it and gotten me to where I am today. So to that end, I, you know, I, I don't really even think of tribes as much with the mentors in my life um, as far as where, where I've gotten. And by all means, I, I would look for people in the space I want to be successful in, mirror their processes and see why are they successful. But at the same time, I kind of have developed these mentors over the, you know, last few decades. And, and I really think those are the ones I go to tribe aside. Same here. I recommend for students specifically or really anybody that's in the industry, it's a requirement in coming through even our coursework. Uh, when you get to Capstone, you have to have a mentor. Um, CFP board clearly sees value in this or they wouldn't have created the entire mentor program and ultimately the ability to work through um, in a in a, in a quasi-apprenticeship model to expedite your CFP, there's value in it. And I think there's value both within and outside. That's, that's also where I see the value of industry organizations, so trade organizations, specifically the one, the one that's allowed us to have this conversation today, because it allows you to meet people who have the same shared passion as you and can help you understand financial planning through their lens. I think anytime you can get together and do that, it's a win. So I encourage people to have both first and foremost within your own company, secondly, um, within your own tribe, and then thirdly, within holistic financial planning, just encompassing any one of these uh, individual tribes. I think that's a win if you capture all three of those. And I'm amazed from watching FPA New Jersey and FPA Utah and DFW and, you know, as I've seen different chapters around the country, how generous your competitors are at sharing um, with you. Um, it's it's a very good profession. The people in it are happy to to help their own competitors know how to do business better. We have another question here from Kate, um, and her question is: What do you recommend to employers within each tribe to make sure that they are hiring equitably versus hiring homogeneously simply within their tribe? Employers can't be oh. picky right now. There is so little financial planning talent relative to how many professionals are needed that employers, um, I think, are willing to reach across a lot of different places. So, for for example, we have a lot of students that start at Fidelity's call center, and there are, there are employers from all of the other tribes happy to steal them from that call center after two years of answering calls and um, so I think just supply and demand has made it so that the tribes don't become insular and only hire from each other. 
they're trying to steal quality talent from wherever they can find it. I would add on to that that you know one of the things about um, you know hiring equitable, you know, really goes to the culture of the firm. You know, I, I think we've seen lately with with uh, some of some of the the Fisher comments that you know is that a culture where my kids want to work, right? Where my students want to work? Where I'll even I'll even encourage an interview? Right? Of course not. Right. I, 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 you know, we, we've had a student interview there recently and they couldn't answer one question about some of the things he said. My, my point being that like culture wise, when we as program directors look, look at culture of firms, that really matters a lot. So as far as homogeneous, you know, and versus versus you know, ha- having a diverse culture, who, who's in partnership roles, who's at the top of the firm, who are the ones meeting with clients? Do you, do you have a culture where, you know, you, you've got, um, mostly, you know, like older white male partners and everyone else is just advisors or do you actually have ownership and equity and stake for everybody? And I think we look at that when we evaluate firms and we look at where students want to go. Uh, so it really does matter. Culture matters. And, you know, that does to some extent dictate and flow into hiring. I think it's to your, your mission. I was, uh, sitting in a, in a conference this last week and, um, it was on ultra high net worth, uh, family governance. And so the, the concept was building some p- parts of it, at least were building a family mission statement. And there's a question from the audience that really stuck me when he, when it, when it was asked. The question was, when you develop a family mission statement for your clients, how do you memorialize that? It never dawned on me. And, and, and the speaker kind of fumbled it a little bit by saying, oh, well, it goes into the document. I think it's more than that. If you want to imbue who you are into who you want, it's got to be crystal clear and a part of culture, maybe even taking on a physical presence inside of your particular tribe. So if you don't want to be homogeneous, let your passion bleed through to where you are heterogeneous around passion. A lot of people have passion. They're trying to find how their purpose fits your passion. So be super clear on that. As you begin to bleed that across and, and, and it and is invaded, invasive within the culture of your firm so that everybody is, is sort of that Jim Collins model. Everybody's on the, the right seat on the right bus. People want to come to work for you. I see that in my students and it doesn't matter what the tribe is. They want to be a part of purpose. And the second element is they want to know that what they do influences the overall mission of the company. If it, there's a lot of research in that space showing that companies oftentimes don't do a very good job of showing how your direct role impacts the mission of the company. So if you can do that well, I think you find your hiring to be a whole lot more heterogeneous and the opportunities become transparent and uh, amazing for all people within the organization. So we have one final question here, and I'm going to tag on another question because we have four minutes left on this. It's, are you finding that getting a master's in financial planning rather than just a bachelor's CFP lands better jobs for graduates of financial planning programs? And the other piece that I would love to add on to this is hearing more of your guys' thoughts on this changing landscape of, I mean, just the jobs that are available for these students and kind of what, and you guys have alluded to it as well, but how that changing landscape within the supply and demand is impacting our profession. Just two, two cents quickly on the change. You know, I, I think when I, I'll look back to my first interview, right, in Odessa, Texas, 1998, and I, I drove to an office of an insurance agent. And uh, I went upstairs, I got my financial planning degree from Texas Tech, right? And at the time, family financial planning. 
And I was going to graduate that semester, and I sit down with this guy, and he looks at me, and he hands me a yellow pad, and he says, well, son, who's your daddy now? That was the job interview, right? That was the entire job interview in financial planning. And today, that kind of garbage is unheard of. And so when I look at the industry and the shift and the change, thank goodness we don't view the world, who's your daddy now anymore, right? But I really see these firms with structures and career paths, and I think the future of our industry is very bright. And I think the future of it tends to be structured. It tends to have work-life balance. And you tend to be able to look down the road five or 10 years. If you work hard, you know what's going to happen. The asker of the question is interesting because he has an MD-CFP, which is a unique combo. Broadly, the more credentials, the more knowledge you have, the better able you, you can demonstrate that you can serve the client's interests. So whether that's a master's in financial planning or a PhD or an undergrad degree in financial planning or a CFP, AIF, CFA, um, EA, CPA, you know, name your designation, credentials and licenses do demonstrate to the client that you have some competence and, and the more the better. I mean, it'd be cool if we all had as many credentials as Michael Kitsis, but but wherever you're at, decide what would be the next best thing for you, whether that's graduate degree in financial planning or another specialized credential in divorce planning or settlement planning or, or something like that. My opinion is a little bit different probably than, than the two of you. Generally speaking, I am not a huge promoter of uh, a master's degree in financial planning if you already have something at the undergraduate level. If you're coming from outside field, so you have a undergrad in ag eco or even finance or an area like that, sure, a master's in financial planning makes a lot of sense to go ahead and capture the educational content necessary to set for the CFP. My personal opinion, this is one person's opinion, is that uh, a CFP is in many instances the equivalent of going and getting a, a master's in financial planning. So I probably wouldn't add a master's in financial planning on top of already having the CFP because in most instances, not all, but in most instances, I don't think you're going to extend your network, your knowledge, or your uh, education in, in a way in, in which justifies the, the cost associated with that. With that said, I loved what um, Luke just said. If I was to do it over again and stay in the industry, I would get additional designations, EA being if, if you want to get into the accounting world, and, and what I'm seeing a big trend is becoming an enrolled agent to be able to add some tax value. So it's where can you add value to your clients? Um, I think if you want to go into that GAR side that we talked about, sure, a master's PhD makes a ton of sense. Have you registered for the FPA NextGen Gathering conference yet? If not, let me share with you some of my top reasons to go to NextGen Gathering. Number one, it's simply the most affordable conference for new financial planners. Number two, we are bringing in extraordinary ambassadors who are focused solely on you. Number three, the homerooms. Gathering is a conference where you actually connect with people and build relationships, not just pass each other in the hallway. Number four, the entire focus of the conference is you and you discovering your path. Number five, it is going to be so much fun in Las Vegas. Gathering is simply a conference unlike any other. Register today at fpagathering.org.